It's good to worship with you. Um, it's also good to open God's Word together. Happy Christmas Eve. Um, we're going to be in uh, Matthew to start with. Matthew is the, the first book of the New Testament, right? And it tells the story of Jesus' life, which, um, as, as I've practiced with my daughter many times this week, Christmas is... Jesus' birthday, right? This is the start of the story. And uh, really what we're doing throughout this series is we're looking at how prophecy in the Old Testament tells us about Jesus' life that's fulfilled in the history of Jesus. And so uh, just a little background. Matthew, the person who wrote this book, he was one of Jesus' 12 disciples. And he was, he was a Jew, and he was writing primarily to Jews to explain that Jesus was the Savior and that Jesus had satisfied the prophecy of the Old Testament. He'd satisfied the things that had been written hundreds and thousands of years before to tell the Jews you can recognize the Savior by this. Um, there's actually 12 different times in Matthew where it he writes something like, this fulfills what was said. Last week, Scott LeGraff walked us through um, the prophecy from Isaiah 9 that Matthew quotes. And it talks about Jesus being born in Bethlehem and Jesus being a light to the world. Uh, today, we're going to be in Matthew 1. This is sort of the first story Jesus, uh, Matthew tells us about Jesus. And he quotes prophecy written 700 years earlier in Isaiah. So we'll start in Matthew 1, then we'll go to Isaiah, and we'll see sort of where he was getting that. Uh, so the first, the first 17 verses of the book of Matthew are the genealogy of Jesus. Matthew starts by telling this is Jesus' heritage. And then the story picks up in verse 18 of chapter 1. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. So in their culture... Once you were engaged, you actually had to go through a formal divorce. So he, he is engaged to Mary, and she is with child, and he has in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so Matthew is saying to his fellow Jews, Jesus is the fulfillment of what was written 700 years earlier by the prophet Isaiah. 
And so what we're going to do is we're going to go back and we're going to look at Isaiah. We're going to look at sort of the original context. Um, say a little, you know, just sort of enjoy the wonder of, wow, this was written of 700 years before Jesus was born. One of, incidentally, seven, no, 61 passages in the Old Testament that prophesied about Jesus coming and his life and his death. Uh, but then we're also going to look at the way prophecy sort of unfolds in the Old Testament because it's an interesting thing, and I think it takes a little bit of work to understand. And then sort of we're going to finish off by talking about how, maybe what God would have for us to understand about who he is through this prophecy. So we're going to move to Isaiah. Uh, if you, if you want to look it up in the table of contents or somehow get to Isaiah 7, that's, that's this verse that Matthew knows. He's quoting, we're going to start in the beginning of Isaiah 7 because that's sort of the context, but we're going to see how God brought these words to bear 700 years beforehand. And it's going to take a little work. If you are doing this on your own, I'd really recommend you either use, you know, a physical commentary or, if, you know, with Google, you can always sort of Google uh, Bible commentary and look at Isaiah 7. And the reason is because there's a lot of names that Matthew would have known. He was a Jew. You know, his parents were Jews. This was his history. You know, we have to take American history, Texas history. They studied Jewish history, right? But you and I probably don't know these names quite as well. So a, a little bit of context, and just because it's easier for me to sort of see it, uh, I'm going to put up a map here. So Isaiah 7 and a map. So this is in, uh, we're about 730 B.C. Um, the story's actually going to kick off in 734 B.C. Um, this is Isaiah 7.1. When Ahaz son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah. Okay, so Ahaz is king of Judah. The capital is Jerusalem. He's a descendant of David. Okay, so he is somehow the, the rightful heir of the throne of David. He's from the house of David. He's in Jerusalem. When he was king, uh-oh, King Rezin of Aram, and Pekiah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. So we have the king of Israel, or sometimes we call it Ephraim. Those are the northern ten tribes of Israel that had rebelled. He'd aligned with the king of Aram. I told you there was a lot here, right? So those two kings, both kingdoms are bigger than, than Judah, both kings attack Ahaz in Jerusalem, but they couldn't overpower it, okay? Verse 2, now the house of David was told Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. Ahaz is scared. These two bigger kingdoms are aligned and they're planning to take him out. He's afraid. He's afraid, and the people are afraid too. And so it's important to recognize what happens. So God sends his prophet Isaiah. Then, then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go, and 
and it tells exactly where they met up and such. But the, the start of Isaiah's words come in verse 7. Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. In other words, Ahaz, they're not going to conquer you. This is, this is what the Lord is promising Ahaz. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only Razim. They're not that important. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. So, God has started this prophecy. There's two pieces that he's already promised Ahaz. So hopefully you heard it. One, Ahaz, you're worried about being conquered right now. Recognize Jerusalem is not going to be conquered right now. And second, within 65 years, Ephraim, that's, that's the kingdom of Israel, will be too shattered to be a people. Well, if you know, if you know the history, you can, you can check it on Google because Google's very reliable most of the time, right? Um, so 734 is when these kingdoms align and they attack Jerusalem and they, they don't succeed. Well, by 732, only two years later, there is a kingdom. It's Assyria up in that right corner, right? One of the major dynasties. Assyria has totally decimated this area. They've taken Damascus, so the kingdom of Aram is no more, and they've taken a bunch of land in Israel. Within two years, that's happened. They never do conquer Jerusalem. So that prophecy came true. He also said, did you hear, within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. Well, if, if you know the story here, Assyria eventually conquers all of Israel, all of the north, leads them away with literally fish hooks in their nose. You know, Assyria was really brutal, totally decimates these people to the, fact, to the point where in Jesus' day, now the south got conquered too, but they maintained their heritage. They were still a people in Jesus' day, 700 years later. The north, we don't even know where those tribes went. They were too shattered to be a people. So already, God has told two things that came true years later, okay? But the story goes on. So Ahaz has trouble believing. He's, he's doubting. And so God comes at him again in verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or the highest heavens. In other words, Come on, I want to convince you that I will take care of you. Ask for something. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of men? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. You wouldn't ask for something here. I'm going to give you something. The virgin will be with child and, you will, and, and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. But before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. 
the Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. God not only says they're going to be decimated, he says who will do the decimation. And so we're going to sort of work from the outside in there, and then we're going to come back to that key verse. And I think what the Lord would have us understand through this prophecy and through the fulfillment there. So uh, first off, maybe a word about Old Testament prophecy. Now, God is, is big, right? We believe that God created the heavens and the earth, but God is also personal. He's concerned about individuals. And so there's this pattern that you see in Old Testament prophecy where God fulfills something specifically for the people he's speaking to, but he also, he, so he fulfills prophecy, but he also fills it fuller. He also has a second fulfillment that is bigger and better. And this is somehow a pattern time and time again. If you look uh, throughout Scripture, there's, there's this pattern of, I'm going to do this for you, Ahaz, but I have a bigger picture in store also. And so the interesting thing about this is, is God doesn't fulfill it once. He fulfills it twice. And that's the beauty, and that's actually what Israel was expecting. I think you'll see as we chat about it a little more. So what's he saying to Ahaz? He's saying, look, you wouldn't ask for a sign. Here's the sign that I'm going to give you. The virgin will be with child, and she will give birth to a son, and she will call him Emmanuel. Uh, that word, incidentally, for virgin, if you've studied this at all, um, that word, let's see, I, I wrote it down here. It's um, Alma in the Hebrew, and it means virgin or really young girl, okay? And so most likely what happened is 734 B.C., Isaiah comes and says, look, you're not going to be taken over. Do you want a sign? This virgin or this young girl is going to have a child, and she will name the child Emmanuel. And so uh, we don't know who the, the virgin was, but very likely, I mean, Ahaz did. And so the first fulfillment was this young girl is having a child, and the child is named, you guessed it, Emmanuel, and that's just so Ahaz would know, okay, God is faithful. It's like somebody coming up to Ryan and saying, Ryan, God wants you to know whatever, whatever, and just so you know, your sister in Alaska is going to have a kid, and she's going to call you and tell you the kid's name is Ryan because she loves you so much, right? I mean, it would be like, wow, that's, that's unusual, right? And in fact, Isaiah gives us more. He says, there's going to be this baby. You're going to see the baby's going to be named Emmanuel. And did you see in verse 15, the baby will eat curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. So what about, about two, maybe a little shy of two, is when uh, everybody with the two-year-old raised their hand. <laughs> when, you know, they know right and wrong. Um, Meredith, how many times did Amelia go to timeout this morning? <laughs> I think this was just a one-time morning. So about two, that's also the time in historic cultures babies would have been weaned, right? And so when a baby gets weaned, what do you give them? Well, in that culture, you would have given them curds, kind of like cottage cheese and honey, not solid foods. So what 
Isaiah is saying here in the prophecy is there's going to be this baby, and in two years, you'll still have food. That's a good thing when people are attacking you and trying to decimate your capital, right? In two years, this baby is going to actually have food. But it's more than that. See the next verse. But before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, before the baby turns two, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. You remember those years. First attack was 734. Two years later, this is the historic record. This isn't, the Bible doesn't have the dates. History has the dates. Two years later, Assyria has decimated this place. Before this baby turns two, this prophecy is fulfilled. And so the intent is beautiful and powerful for Ahaz. The intent is that God would know his struggle and know that God has a plan. God has a good plan. And yet there's more than that. Remember I told you that prophecy in the Bible is, is personal, but yet God also has a bigger picture. And this isn't something that people came up with after Jesus was born. This is something that they understood for hundreds of years before Jesus was born. In fact, uh, so, so the, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. It was translated, the Septuagint, 250 years before Jesus. It was translated into Greek, okay? And at that point, the Hebrew followers of Yahweh knew that this had already been fulfilled, right, hundreds of years ago, but they expected it to be fulfilled again. Isaiah is a book about salvation, about the Messiah. In fact, 250 years before Jesus, I told you, it's a little weird because that word, the virgin, could be translated as sort of young woman or somebody who's never been with a man, right? 200 years, 200 years plus before Jesus, in the Septuagint, the Hebrew scholars say, we think God is telling us about a virgin. And they make a choice. They say, this is about a virgin. God is going to fulfill this with a virgin. And that's why when Matthew quotes it, he uses the Greek word that was what they used 250 years before Jesus that says, yes, this is really going to be someone who has never been with a man and will be with a child. Uh, th the Hebrew scholars had another reason for understanding that. If you look at verse uh, 14, uh, it says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. But it's not a singular you. You know how in English, well, outside of East Texas, they don't have two words for you. Sadly, slight mistranslation because they weren't from East Texas. This actually says y'all. <laughs> the Lord will give y'all a sign, you all a sign. This is a sign for Ahaz, but it's a sign that goes beyond Ahaz. And so the Hebrews knew Matthew's audience, right? Matthew uses this to convince Jews because the Jews knew this wasn't just about Ahaz. This was about a virgin coming and being with child. And that child was Jesus. And so what you have here is you have this beautiful fulfillment and this, this fuller fulfillment for all of us of, of Emmanuel coming. But I think in that you see this pattern. And so I just, I just want 
to sort of pull back and, and look and see, can we see what God is telling Ahaz and really telling us through this passage? And I want to do it sort of in, in four sentences. The first sentence, um, and this is if you're taking notes, these, these are sort of the prompts in the bulletin, is God wants us to know about his good plan and about his good desires for us. He wants us to know that. You know, God could have just provided for Jerusalem, right? I mean, he did. He kept people, but he didn't just provide. What did he do? He came to Ahaz. He said, I'm going to provide for you. Let me convince you. I mean, that's kind of going above and beyond. God wants Ahaz to know that he has good plans. He wants him to know his desire is for Ahaz. Can you see how that's actually the parallel when the angel comes to Joseph, right? Here's Joseph. God's doing this wonderful thing. Joseph is thinking his wife-to-be has been unfaithful. God wants Joseph to know he has good plans. He is not on plan B. And his heart is for Joseph. But then there's this pattern. We struggle. We doubt God's goodness. We doubt his good plans. We doubt his good purposes. I mean, I'd be shocked if anybody in this room hadn't struggled with this at some point. I know I have. And you see it in the picture of Ahaz, right? You see it in that picture. What does Ahaz do? You know, he struggles to believe. No, I won't put the Lord to the test. I'm, I'm just, I'm struggling <laughs> to the point where Isaiah says, is it not enough that you're, <laughs> you know, that you're provoking men? You're going to provoke God? He struggles. He struggles with doubt. And I'm sure you've seen that. I'm sure you've seen that where you've either struggled with, does God even have a plan? Does God have good plans? Or maybe you haven't struggled so much with whether God has a plan, but you've struggled with whether God's plan is good. Okay, I, maybe God has something, but it sure, it sure doesn't work out very well for me. And with our small vision, remember God's vision is vast. With our small vision, it's so easy to say, Either God just, this, God doesn't have it under control or God doesn't care very much about me. God's purposes are bigger and better. Isaiah says it this way in Isaiah 55. He says, for his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. As the heavens are higher than the earth. God has good purposes and he wants us to know them. It's not just enough that he does them. He wants us to know them. So I was, you know, I've been contemplating this. I know I was going to get to share with you on this. And I was, I was sort of struggling with, you know, reading some commentary. And do you know how unlikely it is that the 61 prophecies in the Old Testament would, would be fulfilled? And, you know, people go about calculating that. And, and many of you know I'm a mathematician. So it's kind of interesting. You know, in the maybe trillion to one category that, you know, all this, what are the odds that... Um, Isaiah would come and say that Assyria would conquer these things two years ahead of time and that he would know that the northern kingdoms wouldn't even be a people. You know, what are the odds? You know, so, so unlikely. And yet, as I was sort of thinking about this, it comes down to this isn't one of those things that's like, man, this is a one in tr a trillion chance. 
this is impossible. And you just need to pause and recognize what Isaiah is saying happened, what we believe happened, is impossible. It's not unlikely. It's impossible. Virgins don't have kids, right? It's not like, wow, you're one in a million. You had a kid. You know, it's a virgin. No, virgins don't have kids, right? Uh, it's fitting today that we're going to finish with the Lord's Supper, right? We celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's not unlikely, right? I mean, so in fairness, we believe Jesus died like he was fully dead, right? Four days, and then he was raised to life. That's not like one in a million. That's like doesn't happen short of the intervention of God. Uh, you know, it was really fun to, to meet uh, Professor Wu this morning. Uh, he's, he's a visiting professor from uh, China. You know, this might be your first time hearing about this, and I just, I just want you to know we are aware. I am aware that what I'm saying is happening here is not physically possible without the intervention of God. That's actually what I believe. And, and so you, you have to sort of step back and say, <laughs> this is pretty wild, right? Um, if, if this was your first time hearing, yeah, I believe something that I believe never, never happens apart from God miraculously making it true. And this is kind of how that makes sense to me. I believe God created everything, right? God created the heavens and the earth. God wrote the laws of thermodynamics. God wrote the laws of motion. He created gravity, right? He designed physics. But there's something special that happens when you make the rules, and that's that you can suspend the rules, right? So let's say you go to the doctor, and the doctor says your cholesterol is really high, and so you go home, and you like set up new house rules, and there's no donuts, and no Twinkies, and no carbonated beverages, and those are, those are good rules, right? You write the rules. Your house, you set the rules. Well, what happens if someone you love comes and it's the first time they ever bake donuts? You care about them. You pause your rules, you eat the donut, right? God does the impossible for the good of his own. And that is the story of Scripture more than anything else. God chooses his own with Abraham. And how does the story start? Um, Abraham is 100. He promises Abraham, you're going to have a son. I'm going to be faithful to you through your son. Abraham gets to be 100. His wife, Sarai, gets to be 90. They're thinking, this is impossible. What does God do? He gives them a son. Time and time again, the beginning of Jesus' life, the end of Jesus' life, all through Scripture, God does the impossible for the good of his children. God's rules are good. He does wonderful things. We should study, you know, I mean, so my, my PhD is, is related to conformal field theory and physics. I mean, I, I really, I enjoy physics. I mean, I think we should understand these good rules that the Lord put into place. And yet, it's essential that we know, that we believe God does the impossible for the good of his children. You know, if you're struggling for this, I, you know, 
I, I wonder if somebody's ever kept count. Um, I think Gene Cagle is in the running for doing the most surgeries ever in the history of Nacogdoches. If not, I expect you to get there, Gene. Um, this, this is a guy who's devoted his life to scientific surgery, right? That's, you know, if you go um, <laughs> and you say, I need my gallbladder out, Gene's, Gene probably will pray for you, but he's not going to say, I'm just going to pray for you, good luck with the gallbladder. He's going to do scientific surgery. God's laws are good. And yet you go and ask Gene sometime if he's seen the Lord intervene, do the impossible to provide for his own. You ask him. It'll be a good story. God does the impossible for those he loves. And sort of, I, I think it's only fitting to put in a final point. God's biggest miracle is Jesus. If a virgin having a kid is impossible, God sending his son in the flesh, God being made man, is extra impossible right? And this is the beauty. This is the whole reason we have Christmas. This is the whole reason we have this building. This is the reason we're here, because Jesus is God with us. Jesus, and it's interesting, I think both of the names are telling, so maybe, maybe I'll have them both up here. Jesus, remember the angel says, call him Jesus. That's the Greek version of the, of the Hebrew name Joshua, Yeshua, and it means the Lord saves. The angel is saying, Jesus has come. This boy has come to save you. How is he going to save you? What is God's good plan? It is to send God to be with us. He wants to be with us. And so I, I have uh, one last picture. Somehow I think it's easier to remember things if you have a picture. And so just think of it this way, those four things. God wants us to know that he is good, that he has good plans, and that his desires for us is good. But we often doubt that God is good. We often doubt his goodness. What does God do? Knowing our doubts, knowing our brokenness, God does the impossible. Why? Because God is good. Because God loves you and loves me. What is that most impossible thing? It is Emmanuel. This is the evidence beyond all else that God is good. This is God's plan. Jesus Christ is God's good plan to provide for us. I don't know what you're encountering this week, this month, what you're, whether you're really looking forward to or kind of dreading Christmas season again, but God knows and wherever you are, I want you to know, God wants you to know, he has good plans for you. And he's not surprised if you doubt. He's not surprised if you had fears. In fact, God is able to do the impossible. God delights to do the impossible for his own. And he proved it when he sent his son not only to be born, but also to suffer and to die and to do the impossible, to be raised to life, to show that he truly is Emmanuel, God with us. So, let's continue to rejoice in him. Pray with me. We'll sing a last song of worship, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper together.
Oh, Emmanuel, Jesus, you came that we could know the Father, that we could be right, that we could not just be reconciled, but that we could be with you. We thank you for that. We pray that you would use prophecy, those things that are unbelievably predictive of you, to strengthen our faith, to give us confidence that you are faithful, that you provide for your own. Lord, we thank you, we love you, we worship you. Amen.